Welcome to Jat Chat presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Kara Radzak and your host for today. The purpose of today's event is to provide some more background and information on the recently published manuscript entitled Session Rating of Perceived Exertion Combined with Training Volume for Estimating Training Response. Today, I'm joined by two of the manuscript's authors, Dr. Chris Napier from the University of British Columbia, who also practices clinically as a physiotherapist at Resort Store Physiotherapy, and Dr. Max Paquette from the University of Memphis. Chris and Max, thank you for joining me today. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. So first, let's get into how you guys ended up on this topic. Your group's research really addresses that continuing conversation about how to best es- to best evaluate the load that's placed on runners. And before we go into the discussion of the manuscript, let's get some um, let's get some terms out of the way. So how do you differentiate between the different types of load that go into a runner's total training load? Go ahead, Chris. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, generally um, when we're talking about training load, um, we can divide uh, things up into external and internal training loads. So external training loads would be things like uh, mileage, um, uh, you know, quantities of volume, so it could be time, um, that sort of thing. And then internal loads are really the, um, the body's response to those external training loads. Um, and we can measure those things in uh, things like heart rate uh, or uh, uh, rating of perceived exertion, which is what we did in our paper. Um, and you can combine those um, through a simple formula of multiplying the external load by the internal training load to come up with a, a total training load. And, and just to add to that a little bit, um, what Chris mentioned about internal loads, it's the response to the external loads, but in this particular paper, we're talking about the physiological response, so not necessarily the mechanical internal loads. We're not talking about tissue stresses and strains, just the physiological response. So really getting a sense of how that runner feels in addition to what the runner's doing. Feels, yeah, and also the, like the, it can also be quantified physiologically with heart rate and blood lactate and other measures like that. Although in this particular paper, we did, as you said, Kara, just uh, quantify the perception of effort, which is a measure of feeling, if you will. So what experiences or previous research led you to this path to looking at taking the external and internal and combining it? I think Max and I probably come from a similar background here. Um, you know, Max and I are both uh, washed up runners. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we both actually ran at university in, in Canada. Um, and, you know, we, we've been sort of ingrained in the system of, of, uh, mileage as being sort of the way that you quantify your training, uh, for some time. Um, and so, you know, I think for a long time that was just accepted, uh, by both of us. And, um, and then, you know, Max through his coaching, um, and, and myself through my, my clinical work, um, I think started questioning some of that and, and, uh, and certainly looking at the literature on, on training loads, um, you know, you see this, this sort of example of external and internal training load. 
um, yet it's not really something that was done in, in running and still isn't done very often in running. Um, most of the people I see in the clinic um, can easily tell me exactly how many miles um, they ran last week uh, and what their average mileage is, you know, on a weekly basis uh, over the last six months, uh, what they plan to do over the next six months, that sort of thing. Um, but when we start asking about things like, um, you know, intensity and that sort of thing, it becomes much more murky. And so um, being able to quantify the total load on the, the body um, is really important because we're looking for changes in that. And that's not always uh, readily identified by the just the external load. And clinically and uh, in coaching, like Chris mentioned, uh, that's perfect explanation of how we've come about. For me as well, it's been looking at the uh, running injury research mm-hmm. and how... Um, if you, if, you, if you really take a look at, at what's out there and the conclusion, it's really all over the place and it's really hard to understand. If, you, if, you're, not in, if you're not immersed in the literature, it's hard to uh, you know, read a paper that says if you run less than 50 miles a week, you might get injured. If you run more than 50, you get injured. If you run 32 miles, you get injured. So there's really basically like if you're running at all, you get injured and there's no differentiation between amount of running. And so that for me as well led to, well, obviously – that's not correct. You know, there are no thresholds of mileage that will lead you to injury. It's more so there are other factors at play that we're, we're missing. We're not capturing by only looking at distance. And, and so I think the combination of our, both of, of our applied and, and clinical knowledge has led to these questions in addition to obviously some limitations in, in the literature at the moment. So give us the overview of what you guys actually did in this study. Yeah, so um, this study actually came from, uh, I, I was doing a larger study um, where we were tracking when I was training over a period of about seven months. Um, and we had in that study a large number of people um, where they were they were using um, the RunScribe uh, sensors, um, so, which is just a, an IMU that you, you put on uh, both laces. And so that IMU can um, track a lot of uh, training variables, so things like uh, time, distance, that sort of thing, but also some biomechanical variables. So um, I also in that study was tracking uh, RPE on a, on a session RPE basis um, for every run. And so, you know, Max and I were also working on a couple other projects at the same time um, that were all looking at the same sort of question. Um, and, and so I said, Max, I've got this data, which I think we could actually sort of look at um, you know, to help really sort of see, um, you know, dif- the differences um, between you know, just using uh, time in this case and, uh, and adding in some other variables. So, um, so what we did was we took a, a subset of the, the sample that I had um, and we needed people who, you know, had some sort of continuous data um, and, and, you know, we could look at that. So we, we, um, excluded anyone who didn't have four weeks of continuous data with with all their RPEs entered um, and uh, all their time, but otherwise it was it was a uh, a group of um, runners who were following a, a self selected training program. So they weren't following um, you know a coach led program, for instance. They weren't all doing the same thing. And then um, what we did is we looked at uh, a week to week change um, in. Uh, their training based on the, the different variables. So we looked at um, what percentage change uh, happened from week to week when we just looked at time. Um, so duration of all their runs accumulated in that week. Um, 
Then we looked at what that looked like with uh, steps. And then we also looked at it for um, shock, which is a variable that uh, was recorded by the runscribe sensors. So um, basically cumulative shock. So that each impact of every step um, accumulated across a run and across the whole week. And then we also had RPE values. So we then multiplied each of those external loads by an RPE value. Um, and, and then we looked at uh, the data and, and that's sort of how we came up with this. What'd y'all find? So we found that there was a, a large discrepancy between the variables, um, most notably when we added in that internal training load metric. So when we added in RPE, um, we noticed that there was a, a large underestimation of the week-to-week changes in training load. Um, so, you know, in, in runners uh, that, you know, perhaps were increasing their training load uh, or thought they were increasing their training load by 5 or 10% from one week to the next uh, when they're just looking at the total time run, um, we found that they are actually increasing it perhaps 20 or 30% um, when you actually looked at the intensity uh, and, and their internal training load. So then how does that fit into this? And it really challenges the long-held belief of only increase by 10%. So how do how do you utilize your findings in this way? Yeah, and I think as Chris said, because this was part of a of a couple of other papers on the topic, I think it the cool thing is that these findings are exactly in line with the other work that we've done. So it's not a fluke where like oh this is happening in this group. Like it, we showed this as well in high school runners. So you know how we apply these findings is, as Chris said, the, the main, the, I think the take-home message across all three of these papers is that it's it, there's really value in, in looking into training beyond just distance. That's sort of the overarching point, right? Um, the the I want before I would give a, a take-home or an applied uh, use of it. The the challenge with RPE is that it's a it's a measure that that you obtain after the fact, right? So you can't really, I mean, you can prescribe it, but it kind of defeats the purpose a little bit. So some, some coach will say, well, if RPE is the way to go, like, should I just say, okay, go run 30 minutes and an RPE of three, right? And as Chris mentioned, then we can get a training load of 30 minutes times three, which would be a, a, a training load of 90. The problem with that is by prescribing a RPE of three, you're doing two things. You, you, um, you might sort of trick the athlete in rating the RP at three, whereas it might actually be higher or lower, right? Just because the, the person's heard three, they might just write down three. You might also start introducing some issues like, oh, I don't feel very good, but I'm supposed to be at a three. And I don't want to write down three because, or I don't want to write down seven because my coach might think I'm not good enough. Like, you know, I, I'm working way hard, so I'm going to still put a three down, you know? So mm-hmm. it's hard to prescribe RP. So you, it, it needs to be clear that the application is is in monitoring, not necessarily in, pres- in prescription of training. I just so, add to that, yeah. Max. And another issue with that is that um, it, it's meant as a, a total session RPE. And so, you know, it's meant to reflect back after the fact on the entire session. And you may start off at a three um, and it feels like a three, but that could quickly ramp up to a five or a six or a seven, as Max said, depending on your, um, you know, how you're responding on the day. So it's another reason why it doesn't work so well with prescription. It's meant to be a sort of a global assessment of the entire session after the fact. Yeah. So the the, the main thing is to make sure that practitioners, whether it's clinicians or, or coaches that are working with athletic trainers, that they understand that this is really a monitoring tool where you're you're really trying to make sure that what it is that you're prescribing is actually 
the outcome that you're getting. Um, and so uh, it, it does require a bit of work, you know, on the back end, you've got to make sure the athletes are recording things properly and they understand what they're asked to do. What is RP? You know, what does a three should feel like or so on? Now that also depends on the person. So you have to be clear that it's, it's among yourself and not between people. You get that issue among team where, you know, you're, they're all recording their RPE and then one runner is looking at the, what did you put down? I have three. Okay. I'll put a three as well. Right. So you, you, there's a lot of things you have to consider to, to make sure that th this is repeatable and reliable. So, um, but yeah, the value is just like Chris said, it's just, it's, it's, it just gives us a, a broader picture of what's going on with an athlete in response to training. And as opposed to just assuming that if I give you a five mile run, that that five mile run is doing the same thing to you every single day, even though it's not mm -hmm. right. And that's just, it's the gap we're trying to fill is really capturing what a certain run is actually doing to an athlete. That's the, you know, the, the application of it. Yeah. It's also, you know, taking that five mile run example, it's, it's saying that it's the same as doing five by one mile repeats. Right. Yeah. Uh, which would be very obviously not, not the same. Right. Right. So then you can take that information and inform your future pr either program development or build in rest days. And, yeah. and um, how do you go ahead, Max? Well, I was going to say on that, on the, on the, you know, uh, adjusting the training for me, uh, I use, I use Google sheets as my, my monitoring platform, if you will. Right. It's not a fancy app or anything, but the athletes that I coach, they know to log their, their, their data every day after the runs within an hour or so. And so I can, you know, if I'm not at a practice, which I'm not, I, I only see the, the athletes I coach, you know, twice a week, sometimes just once a week. So for me, it's really important to get these data, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm there every day and I see athletes all the time, you can pick up on who's tired and who's not responding well because of, you know, you know, mannerisms, you know, how they're holding themselves, how they're doing in a workout, you know, you know, what they're saying, those kind of things. But when you're not around, it's so useful because now you can get something much more out of your monitoring approach than just the distance. And so I'll go and see, uh, oh, wow, that run was meant to be an easy run, but the, you know, the RPE was real high today. And this athlete didn't tell me this. They just they put it down. You know, they, maybe they're hoping that I don't see it. Hurt. You know, they, they're, they're honest and that's the important thing. But then I can go and say, hey, you know what, tomorrow, let's just do, uh, let's just not do the workout. We'll do that the next day instead, right? You're not quite recovered yet. So you could, you can be proactive for future sessions using the data in, in your monitoring approach to make adjustments. Now, Chris, how do you utilize this in somebody who's coming back from an injury? Yeah. So, um, you know, often when someone's coming back from an injury, we might be using like a return to run program, whether that's starting off as a run walk or just starting off with uh, easier running and that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, for me, it, it gives much more information. Um, obviously, we're going to be taking into account things like pain. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, when someone hasn't been running for a while and they're coming back into running, um, especially more experienced runners who have a bit of a training history, you know, they may want to jump in and, and start running faster or longer um, when they're really not ready for that. And so, um, you know, adding this into um, in, into what they're reporting does two things. One is it tells me how they're accommodating to that sort of return to run. Um, but it also tells them how they're accommodating. And I think that's even more valuable because they actually have to, they're forced to reflect on how they're managing the load that's um, that they're starting to increase. Um, and, and we can, you know, we can set some sort of arbitrary uh, 
you know, week to week increases. Um, I say arbitrary just because, you know, the, the 10% rule that you mentioned hasn't really, you know, panned out um, with the, the research. Um, you know, we've seen in, in a number of studies, it can be up, you know, to 30%. Um, but of course, those are all looking at just volume. Um, so I think there's there's opportunity to look at uh, actual training load using internal and uh, external metrics to, to see if there is, you know, more of a magic number or more of a range that people can accommodate. Um, but I think, uh, you know, what, what we can do with uh, the data in the clinic is we can, we can look at that and see how they're responding to it. And then some people you may sort of go slower with and increase, you know, closer to 10%. Other people may be able to ramp up faster towards 30%, but the data I'm getting is much richer as a result. What recommendations do you have for somebody who might be in like a high school setting and they don't have access to something like a wearable technology that you guys utilized? Well, I mean, the big finding from our study was actually you, you didn't need that. Um, you know, what we found was that uh, time uh, times RPE was was uh, probably just you know good enough for for everyone. Um, there might be uh, you know we found that with the um, cumulative shock data, when there's um, a lot of variety in training, that may be you know a little bit more sensitive to that those changes. Um, but that's something we have to you know study further. Um, but for the vast majority of people, it's just a simple formula of time times RPE. Yeah. And that's the, uh, that's the major finding of, of uh, <clears throat> the other paper uh, that we, that we had that was led by Megan Ryan um, with the high school runners. Um, and that high school team has since, you know, adopted the, 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 this, they were using this already, but now they either using it you know, more objectively with, with the Google sheet and all that information. And so it's being tracked constantly. Um, and, and so, and there's about 47 kids on that team. So, um, you know, and, and the coach meets with them regularly, of course, but it's also nice to get those additional data to, to confirm what he might, what he might think or feel. Yeah, that's one of the beauties of this paper is that there's something that is very easily implemented across all levels yeah. of, of training and of expertise. The other thing that we didn't really talk about in there that I think is valuable, especially those high school coaches who might be at high schools that, uh, that you know, have, have kids with families who may, may, may not be able to afford GPS watches and things like that. Um, you know, the, the, the beauty of time uh, in RPE is that time is a cheap way to, is, is a cheap metric to measure. Uh, and RPE is obviously a free one. So, you know, a, a $35 Timex watch from, from Target or Walmart, um, you know, is, seems to be at least sufficient the way that, that we've, or based on the findings that we've, that we, that we got. So, That's how we really used to do it anyway. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Just a stopwatch, right? <laughs> and and uh, yeah, and that sort of thing. Cause you didn't have, you know, your heart rate displayed and, and you know, cadence and all these other things. So actually had to tune into how you're feeling and, uh, and just monitor time. So based upon the conversations that you've had, especially with the high school athletes that you've worked with, one of the things that I know when I was working at a high school as an athletic trainer is you see this wide variation of athletes that this might be their first time doing a sport or even running, but yet they're going out for a cross country team and every high school athlete, Athletics takes all comers, right? Um, so how could you potentially utilize this in that wide range within one team of abilities? 
Yeah, good question. I think, uh, I mean, that's, that's an important question because most, I would say the majority of high school teams don't deal with necessarily runners that are in it for performance necessarily, right? There's a lot of kids who just do it for the social aspect of it and, um, and uh, may still get injured or may still, you know, eventually want to perform, but at least early on. And I think, I'm not sure I would, I'm not sure I would, I would necessarily um, focus on monitoring in some of, in some of the, the younger kids, especially like middle school, and middle school, and then young high school kids who are just kind of getting started and tra- mm-hmm. trying to figure out how, what running is about. I probably wouldn't spend too much time on the monitoring aspect. I would, I would more focus on educating runners about, you know, feel and perception and, and instead of focusing on paces uh, and, and distances, more focusing on how they feel, how they respond, you know, doing the right things around running. Um, I think there's much more bang for your buck there than, than actually trying to, you know, micro measure everything uh, at that level. Cause honestly, they're probably not running enough at that age that it would cause many issues. Um, I mean, it's possible, but I'm saying uh, generally it's, it's not a big issue. And so again, it's just more about education around these things. So that by the time they get to an age where they might be training more or more serious about things and, and, um, there could be a higher risk of injury. Then they know what to do and how to do it. And then you can focus on those things a bit more then. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's, um, it sets up some good learning opportunities for, for kids at that age. And, and I also use this for, for recreational runners who are maybe newer to running um, and not necessarily from the monitoring perspective, but as an educational tool to really tune into how they feel um, rather than, you know, it, it's so easy just to, um, set a pace on your watch and, and try and stick to that pace without really thinking about how you're feeling. And, and, you know, when you're in a race, you want to be able to run to feel, right? You, you know, you need to be able to kind of know what that pace should feel like um, and know if you're not feeling uh, on that day uh, or if you're feeling you can go faster. So it's much more important to be able to tune into how you're feeling. And, you know, there's, there's been, research that's looked at um, some of the descriptors and, and uh, numbers on the scale and being able to tie it to things like lactate threshold. And for instance, you know, a, about four or somewhat hard on the scale um, is tied to that kind of lactate threshold level. Um, and so I think understanding that and understanding what a four feels like, because, it, you know, understanding how the, the scale works and practicing the scale um, is, is really important over time. I think getting that, um, and, and learning that is is uh, is you know, really important, more important than, than just using it as a monitoring tool. I agree. So, if a clinician or a coach wants to start implementing this today, what is your first step that you recommend to start implementing? Yeah, to start implementing and to use your findings in their practice. I'll let you take that one with practice. Chris, in terms of the clinical aspect of? Yeah, from the clinical aspect, I mean, I, I certainly um, encourage most of the runners I see. Um, so I guess to back it up, um, I have, you know, runners that come in and see me uh, and immediately what we're trying to do is detect, okay, what, what changed in your training? Why did this happen now? Um, and, you know, so people immediately look to things like mileage because, uh, again, they track it. They look to things like footwear because that's easy to identify um, and, you know, it, it takes some time to delve in a little bit and, and figure out, uh, what, 
um, you know, what the, what change in their actual training load. Um, and I remember Max, uh, you know, I think he tweeted out a, a graph a few years ago um, that really highlighted uh, some, some what changes can occur when you're looking at more than just that mileage. Um, and so I, I show that sort of thing to the patients and, and say, look, this is what we're really looking for. And, and I think a little light bulb goes off um, in their head sometimes when they see that. They go, oh, well, you know what? Yeah, I took it down week in mileage, but I was really working on my speed and I, was, I did a few you know, workouts on the track or whatever. And so, you know, identify that change. Um, so I think that's important just from an educational perspective. And then maybe going forwards, they have a bit of a better idea of, you know, what they're really looking for in terms of changes. Um, and then, you know, educating when I've got people, you know, rehabbed and, and leaving the clinic, um, being able to say, hey, look, this is a way for you to monitor going forwards so that it's a bit easier to identify um, if you're making rapid changes um, that aren't necessarily reflected just from your volume. Mm-hmm. So as we wrap up, I want to know what you guys are really excited about um, in the running research field. So what excites you about the future of running related research? Max? Yeah, well, actually, I'll, I'll uh, toot Chris's horn a bit here. Uh, they're doing some really neat work with uh, uh, fabric and fabric that can actually measure movements. Um, I'm not sure if you've seen any of that, Kara, but it's uh, it's really really interesting. And and uh, so that's that's I think is cool because if we can if we can have runners wear tech, wear garment that can measure their movements every single day when they run. Of course, you might have to do laundry quite often, but um, you know, uh, by, you know, maybe in a few, maybe in 10 years, 15 years, that's like just the norm. And so imagine if every single one in the world is wearing clothes that measure their movements, um, that that's like the biomechanist's dream, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so that's pretty cool. Uh, and so that's exciting. And I, and I, I'm really, uh, liking all the, uh, diagnostic ultrasound, uh, imaging going on right now with, uh, quantifying, you know, uh, tissue characteristics, tendon, muscle, so on and so forth, and specific things within that. Um, I think that's really interesting for, for the running literature as well. Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, clinically, uh, I'd love to have someone come in and, and be able to just hand me a bunch of data um, and and show what they've been doing for the last, you know, three months or six months. Um, and for me to kind of look through it and try and pick up some some patterns or changes there. Um, and, you know, I think one thing to note is that, uh, often running injuries get all lumped in as, as the same thing. Right. And, uh, and that it's a change in, in, uh, training load globally that, uh, causes any injury, but, you know, we know that's not the case. So I think by being able to quantify, uh, more specifically loads on certain structures, um, or, um, you know, in different terrain, different footwear, that sort of thing. Um, the more we can kind of quantify those things, I think uh, it's exciting because we may actually be able to say that for X injury, these are some of the really specific risk factors. Whereas right now, I don't think we can say that about most injuries. Thank you. Thank you both so much uh, for joining me again today, Max and Chris. It was a pleasure for having you on to this special episode of Jat Chat on running medicine. Thank you again. 